Hello, guys. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast. And if you're new, welcome. Welcome, welcome. It's Lens and Krista. Thanks for being here. Oh, we're about six years in, baby. How do you feel? Six? No way. <laughs> yeah, almost six. 2016, September. <laughs> it's That's five. Literally every time we talk about when we founded this, like in interviews and stuff, you're like, it's been, I, it's I, been four years. And I, I'm like, it's I five. Say four. No, I say four. And that's my age. I'm like, I'm like 29. <laughs> because people are forever the same age. My dad, what was it? When we were talking to my dad, it was his birthday on the first. And Aww. he was like, I was like, oh, happy birthday, dad. Are you 58? And he was like, no. <laughs> were you serious? Serious. <laughs> I have a problem <laughs> where people are forever. Same with even people on our team. I know. I think even like 22. Chloe. When Chloe, Chloe um, who worked for us for a long time, she has her own business, Chloe Leonard Studio. Mm-hmm. Forever was 22 in my head. I know. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> I was like, are you okay to drive? <laughs> I was like, is this legal? Do you want me to sign that for you? Honestly, I was like, I was like, hide the alcohol when we're drinking at dinner. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know what that is about me. I don't know. Forever young. It's very weird. Forever young. Five and a half. Let's meet in the middle. Five and a half years. Uh, If you're new to the pod, we started this during our transition from your 20s to your 30s. It was a time of just freaking out, Mm -hmm. not knowing which way was up and just having a lot of questions. And Krista and I, met during that time and just found so much healing in our friendship and conversations. So we wanted to bring it to you. Mm-hmm. And here we are. That beautiful time. Mm-hmm. Yes. That beautiful time when your prefrontal cortex is coming online. <laughs> My favorite fact, you guys, is 28th that time Christmas. 20, every cortex. interview, this is what I drop. Because it's helpful <laughs> yeah, to it's realize helpful. that when you there's like it's helpful to understand that there's a scientific reason why you feel so confused and lost when you're 25 and 26 is because that yes. is happening. And yes. it's really helping you to differentiate like between who you are, between what society's told you, between your family and so many things. And mm-hmm. I actually was thinking I want to have like a brain doctor on to talk specifically about what's happening with your brain when you're in your late 20s. Mm. Tara Swartz coming on, but oh, that's, yeah. that's more manifestation but she, but she does a lot of piece of yeah, that so actually that'd be great that as well yeah that actually would be great um but today i mean good thing we're talking about this dr nicole lapera is on the podcast again mm-hmm. you guys she was on almost 33 years ago don't ask me about <laughs> years i'm not the year girl but she was on when she had honestly a hundred few hundred thousand mm-hmm. on her account and um did she come over to your old apartment no she was actually in Philly when we interviewed Wow, her. with the brick background. With the brick wall. She had the brick wall background. She was in Philly. She was still taking clients. Yes. And we blew her up. <laughs> so. <laughs> she went to 3 million because yeah, of literally. being on and Almost And then 30. that next week, she passed us up and then took it to the moon. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we have that older one with her, which was really beautiful. And then it's been awesome to see her grow. And we're really excited to talk about her new book, How to Do the Work in this yes. episode and talk about a lot of the things that our community and we really like to learn and hear about reparenting and our child work, boundaries, enmeshment. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a juicy one. I found it really fascinating because I hadn't, this book is also like a pseudo memoir. It's kind of, mm-hmm. it helps the reader to understand, you know, the topics and things that she's focusing on through her own experience and examples. So in talking in the interview about your her family, I just found it to be fascinating, this idea of kind of like the family unit as one, as mm-hmm. one identity. Ameshment. 
Yes. And not being able to be an individual because that threatens the unit. And um, it just made me think about, while that's not my experience, it made me think about my family system and just mm-hmm. in a in a whole other way where there was definitely some dynamics going on where I felt, and to this day, I kind of feel like a little uncomfortable when I feel like an individual apart from them. Yes. I'm obsessed with enmeshment because my I have someone very close to me that has an enmeshed relationship with her family in Ohio. And honestly, it is the most toxic thing mm. ever because it's toxic in a way that tells you that it's not toxic and tells you yes. that it's love. It's that group think, baby. It's that group think. So it's, they're not only not allowing you to be an individual, to be yourself, to think for yourself, but they're telling you that they love you so much that when you do that, that is bad. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, I always thought about that. I'm like, yo, I had my own experience with my family and it was more like everyone was kind of on their own. We're all like our own little islands. And everyone, I personally, for my dharma, whatever that means, would pick having the independence and neglect over that any day. Mm-hmm. Because there is just, it's like a cage. It's heavy. It's, it's heavy. Super heavy. Also too, I was thinking about, and this isn't, I was thinking about this because the people that I do know that have a meshment, and I think Dr. LaPera also mentioned this, I think there's a cultural aspect to it where oftentimes where there's second generation immigrant families often have that enmeshment because there's so much change happening and there's so much cultural shifts that are occurring that it can be really scary for the parents or for the grandparents to see that happening. And they could see people trying to like break out, trying to like change, trying to evolve and trying to really take on a new culture or a new identity outside of what they currently have. And that can be really scary for those people. So then they can kind of try and keep them in with that enmeshment love. Yes. Which is crazy. Yes. We also talk about the online persona. Yeah. You know, everyone today pretty much has some sort of online persona they're trying to uphold whether you're an influencer or not you if you have an instagram mm-hmm. or something online like there is something there and just how how that could be affecting us and how we can kind of break from that constant identification with our online persona mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. was really, really fascinating. Yeah, she talks about, it's like the ego projection. So Mm -hmm. the ego works overtime to defend its perception of who we are. So the perception of who we are is essentially like the mask. It's like, people perceive me as good. People perceive me as nice. People perceive me as smart and all of these things. So the ego does everything it can to like keep that perception. And this is why oftentimes when people have really strong egos, they're not growing and evolving because their ego is keeping that same perception of who they are that basically was oftentimes a value-based system when they were very young. So their parents will often imprint this value-based system on them. Like you are valuable if you are quiet. You are valuable if you are these things. And so the ego really protects that perception of who we are. And I mean, the internet basically is just that egoic projection that we have. And there's a lot there. And I think I'm going to do a solo episode on that because I'm thinking about that. It's almost like this, it's almost like a true projection where it's this hologram, where these holograms of ourselves exist online. And when we think about when we post a picture or when we post a caption, it's like just feeds into this like perceived person or hologram that isn't essentially real, but is real enough. So it's like real adjacent 
because you're saying real things, you're you're feeling real feelings, you're you're a real person in the photo, but it's not really you. So it's so close to you that it feels like you, and it feels like another part of you that you need to feed. I yes. have to think about that, like feeding that. I'm like, oh, how am I going to feed this perception of me online? I've got to post this. I've got to do that. And I think that will be, and the uncovering of that will be one of the greatest things that we have to work against in the upcoming years is separating ourselves from that. Yeah. Because I think, you know, if if we are people who are just naturally evolving, like we will quickly evolve out of what is being projected online. And so if there becomes this like difference between that projection and then who we are becoming, I'm sure there can be a lot of either cognitive dissonance or just confusion from that person. And also from the quote audience watching it happen. And they be, there's this really strange thing that happens if you change online. It's not always the case, but in certain cases where if you change, people are like, wait, mm-hmm. who are you? Mm-hmm. I follow you because of one thing or you know, mm-hmm. this identity that you've upheld. So it's really, really fascinating because then the question really is, are you this person who feels, you know, slighted by someone's growth or evolution? Are you allowing yourself to grow and evolve? Mm -hmm. You know, it's always the, okay, how am I treating myself in that way? Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, because the the hologram essentially is static at some points because the hologram is essentially something that lives in people's heads. So they create the hologram of you Mm -hmm. where they're like, oh, she's the person that loves matcha lattes and she loves to share what she eats in a day. Like (laughs) she is this person, she is fun, she is lively. And then it's like when you kind of change that, it's like it needs to be updated. The system needs to be updated. And sometimes people don't have their own updated system to like accept the new projection that's happening. Um, I also loved when we talked about the inner child archetypes. So when working, doing a lot of inner child work, which we've talked about on the show before, um, you know, with folks like Lacey Phillips um, and just other times when we've had people on um, really nurturing and learning to remother yourself or reparent yourself is really important. And when we discovered the inner child child archetypes with Dr. LaPera, it was really beautiful to sort of see it in that context. So you can understand yourself a little bit further than you would when you're kind of working from a place of like, I think it's little me and she's, and you don't really understand what you're like because mm-hmm. you feel far from her yes. or him or they. What did you identify with? I forget. Um, all of them probably. <laughs> I was the life of the party and the overachiever probably. Mm. What were you? Caretaker. Caretaker, rescuer, yes person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Life of the party sometimes, but that was more like when I was just, yeah, just trying to get attention. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> you were being a yes person essentially. <laughs> but yeah, those inner child archetypes are the caretaker, the overachiever, the underachiever, the rescuer, the life of the party, the yes person, and then the hero worshiper. And I think it'd be interesting to apply these to enmeshment and even to attachment styles. Mm-hmm. Like which of these archetypes fit in, fits in with enmeshment or attachment styles or things like that. Because I bet you a lot of these, you know, for someone who's enmeshed, you probably have to be a yes person. You probably have to be a hero worshiper and you probably have to be an underachiever in order to stay safe yeah. and feel comfortable. Yeah, that is so true. So, and then we talked about the nervous system and really what's been um, happening, you know, in the past year or so. Mm -hmm. Now we're kind of going past a year in 2020 into 2021 and how 
that's affecting our nervous systems and what really that does to our brain and our body and um, how important it is to be mindful of supporting and being aware of our nervous system. Yeah, I actually didn't understand the concept of like a dysregulated nervous system before this conversation. And um, Nicole gives us uh, just some really tactical things that we can do in the moment to balance our nervous system. So one of them is breath. Um, She talks a lot about breath work, but I just thought it was fascinating because it brought new awareness to moments that I have where I'm unable like I'm fully aware of the sensation in my body because of a certain emotion, but I'm unable to regulate it in a proper way. I just kind of let it, you know, go back to a lower <laughs> a lower intensity. But I just thought that was really fascinating because I'm sure a lot of us out there are just used to that feeling. Yes. You know, so I'm excited for you guys to listen. Her new book, How to Do the Work, is out now. It's a really good one. It's one of those that you'll just kind of pick up and and learn so much whenever you want to dive in. Yeah. Um, and this is a good one to send to a friend. So if you've been having conversations with your friends or you just want to expand your knowledge of inner work or learn how to do the work, I think this is a really, really great one to share. Sharing is caring. Sharing is caring, baby. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. And make sure to check out our new website and uh, click on on the shop. We have so many really supportive, helpful programs and downloadables for you. One that sticks out to me just from this conversation is inner peace. Mm -hmm. So just in the wake of, you know, all that has happened in the last year, you know, we'd be happy to support you. It's super affordable and hundreds of you have really loved digging into inner peace on a regular basis. So check that out. Yeah. Quitting anxiety forever might be another good one. We have another workshop called quitting anxiety forever. So those are all available at almost30.com. You can peruse our new site, beautiful site and shop experience that we're super proud of. And just thanks again for, you know, being a part of the community, for being such supports to everyone that is a part of almost 30 nation and to both Lindsay and I, we really, really, truly appreciate it. All right, y'all. We'll see you on the other side. We'll see you soon. Bye. Every time I see you, I'm like, wow, she's just really doing it. So we're excited about the book and just we're so excited to have you again. It's just a pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to be here. So thank you both. Yeah. Two years ago, I feel like so much, so much has happened. Like, and I feel that way too with us. Curious what like you, what you would say to Nicole two years ago. Mm. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Buckle true. up, baby. Hold on. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I think there was so much unexpected about my journey just from even going online um, as a place for it to be my outlet, to begin to speak my truth, you know, having an idea that there might be one or two humans out there interested in the truth and really looking to connect with those people. I was feeling quite lonely in Philly. A lot of my relationships were shifting, were changing. I had no idea, though, that the group, the the village of self-healers would be 3.4 million and counting at this point. So from the jump, and that started, the followers started to accumulate, you know, Right quickly. after our podcast, really, probably. Really, <laughs> definitely, 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 definitely. So yeah, so I didn't expect it from the It was really amazing. <laughs> wild, wild ride. Wow. Wow. So cool. I'm curious, too, just on that, like, online community. Have you found it to be mostly supportive in people's healing work? Like, how does that play a role in individual healing? 
I think it's, it is incredibly imperative. Um, we're interpersonal creatures. We all need relationship. We all needed relationships since the moment we stepped foot, if you will, right, on this, mm-hmm. on this earth experience. And a lot of the difficulties I think that most of us are struggling with are around how we're relating, how authentic we feel, how connected we are to ourselves and to others. So to heal, I, I don't, and I watch my work get misinterpreted a lot, mm-hmm. but this idea that I am professing, well, you know, person on island, heal alone, screw mm-hmm. everyone. Um, but actually the reality is I'm very aware of how much relationships that's why even developing the hashtag self healers was my way to begin to congregate humans together Mm -hmm. and then when I saw how overwhelmingly universally resonant the messages were you know people from around the world were wow I'm sounds like my life sounds like me sounds like the journey I'm on I then you know understood the necessity for what I desired you know was to develop the self healer circle having a membership, having a place where those of us that are interested in actioning and beginning to change can do so in a supportive environment. So as far as I'm concerned, relationships are, are how we heal, um, mm-hmm. learning how to show up authentically in them, that is. And the Instagram will always be part part of the journey for me um, because it's through those same relationships that I'm healing, learning how to express my truth authentically to the people in my personal life and obviously the many that I don't know personally within the community. So it's even an exercise in my healing and will mm-hmm. remain an exercise in my own healing. So mm-hmm. it will be there. And like I said, the Instagram for me is the place where I can always equalize access. So mm-hmm. that's going to be an important part of the journey outside of you know, the yeah. paid community, having the tools out there for the people in some places around the world that have never heard of these concepts or don't have access Uh, to the practitioners. So community in that way will always be part of my journey. It's huge. And it's huge. But also, I guess I want to just pick that apart. I guess the criticism around the, you know, the expression that you believe that people believe you believe that you need to do work on an island by yourself. So what would you say? Like, do you think that we need others to heal in community? Or do you think that you could do healing on your own? Because I guess I just think about it and I'm like, I guess the feeling that we need others, is that right? Like we don't need others. We should want to be around them. And I guess how much is of it, it of the work that we do is on ourselves and that we should do alone. And then we sort of kind of fine tune in community, it feels like for me. Or what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a very beautiful way to describe it. We, I think there can be an over-reliance on others. Mm-hmm. If you're someone like myself, who resonates with codependency or who had that enmeshed family unit, um, what that looked like for me is I actually attempted, not so successfully, to get all of my needs met through others by showing up for others, by making sure that everyone, you know, or to my perception was happy or was, you know, fulfilled in life by outsourcing. Um, So when I, when we talk about individual work, Um, It's learning how to embody our authenticity, Mm -hmm. how to define and meet our own needs separately from others, empowering us to have choice. So now I can choose to have support. I can choose to bring my emotions to this person. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing so because I need to, because I don't have anything else to make me feel better. Um, So for some of us, like I said, that that are like me, that are codependent, that individual work becomes the foundation Mm -hmm. because we have to break that habit first of going to others. We're almost too good mm-hmm. at worrying about others, even though we do it unsuccessfully. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too, you know, with the the aspect of community because I feel like the ways in which our community is so skewed now, where we see community and it sometimes is a hashtag and that's powerful and that's true, but like a social media online community is not really the same community that we've grown up with or evolved with. And that community more so is like people that are in your area, your family, people that are very close to you. And I guess that would be seen more as the community. And it's almost like, I feel like when people are like, we need community to heal, it's like very true. But I think of it more of like the tribal sense of community needed to heal rather than like social media community from my perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I talk about evolution and villages mm-hmm. and tribes because we are all, you know, down to our physiology wired in that way. Um, and I do think, you know, for a large extent, our communities were what was in proximity to us. That gets complicated because a lot of times what's in proximity to us, our family, namely, right, they're struggling with the same habits and patterns that we find ourselves ultimately to be. That's how intergenerational patterns are transmitted. I'm limited by what I know. And so if I were to have a child, which I don't, I would pass on those very similar limitations. However, and this is the beauty of doing the work, as we change, as we begin to shift our beliefs, as we begin to show up differently, even in those same relationships that might be more or less locked in that dynamic, now we can actually create change in even those immediate communities of our families or of our you know, neighborhoods or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. So again, I believe that the collective healing that many of our communities need in proximity comes when one or two individuals begin to change their way of being. Mm -hmm. Because I know that we're energetic creatures and we do affect the world around us in unseen ways quite often. Mm. Yeah, I feel like 2020 was, was that kind of like earthquake in a way to a lot of those, you know, whether it's intergenerational family patterns or things like that. And it almost was like just magnified to me, even though I'm 3,000 miles away from most of my family. I'm curious like what opportunities people have if they're feeling like a lot of stuff is coming up even into this new year where they are so hyper aware of, wow, my parents were like this. And because of that, I am like this. I would love to just talk about how we can begin to just compassionately start to do the work around that um, intergenerational patterning from our parents. Yeah, I think 2020 was a a pattern disrupt in a Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And anytime we're out of our familiar, many things happen. The familiar is what we gravitate to evolutionarily as humans. So for some of us, even not going to that same job, using that same route at work or whatever it is can be challenging. And then Mm -hmm. of course, it's complicated even more by those of us who have actually experienced losses, maybe of people, maybe of finances. Now we're going to be activated in terms of, for some of us, maybe new traumas, for others, older traumas. Then who are we at home with? How much time are we having? Do we have the time to go introspectively? Then like you're saying, Lindsay, to look and to see Mm -hmm. these patterns. Are we just having more time to witness ourselves? And with that, with healing in general, can come a lot of challenge, a lot of discomfort. We do, many of us, at least begin to feel some kind of way when we see, oh, right, I am like this because mom and dad or whomever had those limitations or I had these experiences with them. Mm -hmm. So to that, I say a couple things allowing whatever feelings to come up is part of the journey. 
allowing yourself to feel the hurt, the disappointment, the anger, whatever it might be, the grief, the loss. I mean, the, the, that could go on to infinity, whatever you're feeling, allowing that to be true for you. Because a lot of us prevent ourselves from healing or pre- prevent ourselves from releasing our emotions and actually moving on because we don't actually feel them. We don't experience them. We don't express them. So that's really an important part of it to do so, however, non-judgmentally of the self, right? A lot of us judge ourselves. We feel like we shouldn't feel sad. We might feel like mm-hmm. other people have had it worse. So mm-hmm. who am I to be upset about this not very big thing that happened to me? Um, so allowing our feelings to be without judgment, this also can extend then to judging the other participants, the family members that you know were part of your experiences. This doesn't mean that you have to enter in the same type of relationship with them. Um, However, if you can pull back, again, see them as humans that were limited by their own past experiences, that can allow us to expand, as I say, and to hold maybe empathy and compassion. You can understand why they had the limitations that have caused you pain and you still may choose the word that I think many of us love to hate boundaries mm-hmm. or you may choose to put up dynamics or new shift your dynamics in those relationships um, obviously that's a process everything I just described that doesn't happen overnight I think though that that allows us to release our own feelings safely and then like I said to to for those of us that need to shift and change relational dynamics, possibly with family members to begin that journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the boundaries thing is so, it's so funny because it's so, it's so popular right now. Like I feel like so many people talk about boundaries and it's just like a very hot button topic. And I really loved the post that you did recently that was boundaries versus demands. And I felt like that was really helpful for me when navigating the online space, especially because I felt like a lot of the rhetoric and the demands seems like it was rhetoric used by online accounts and people that were making demands of others, maybe that they know or don't know. And it's interesting in my life, the way that I've sort of moved into my boundaries. It's like, you know, it starts with the mom and then it goes to relationships and then it kind of moves to social media as social media has progressed. For people that are brand new to boundaries, I guess, what is like the general awareness or how do you help them realize what boundaries are? Because I feel like for me, it's like a very energetic awareness of it. So how do you, I guess, introduce people to boundaries? Well, I introduce people to boundaries by defining them as as limits, first and foremost, which I think for many of us who don't have boundaries, like myself, (laughs) can be very elusive. What do you mean a limit? I don't know where the separation is between me and you. I just feel blended together. Like I described myself earlier, I was blended together because my needs really did fluctuate based on those around me. So there wasn't that, right, that that separation. So really- you're talking about with your parents. And then that, that I repeated that wow. into as we do. I mean, most of us do learn the model for relationship based on our primary caregivers, whomever that might be. So I was raised in a two-parent home. So for me, my primary relationships with either of those parents became the blueprint. So if I think listeners out there, if you look around, we do tend to seem ourselves being, see ourselves being very patterned in relationship. We're always the helper. We're always the caretaker to some degree. And again, that originates with, within our model of relationships. So as someone who'd never had parents that modeled boundaries or that separation, my whole family right, was an enmeshed unit. 
Um, I talk about group think. Paris think this. We do this. We don't do that. That's an example of that lack of separation. Really, there was five people in my family, five, <laughs> assumably, individual people, yet oh we gosh. were grouping ourselves mm-hmm. together as this unit who all had the same thoughts at the same time, who all had the same needs at the same time and got them met in the same ways. And that's just not true. As similar as we might be to people in our life, our loved ones, our family members, even we're still unique individuals. So having the safety and the space to create that separation allows us to embody ourselves authentically, present ourselves within our relationships and allow others to do the same. So the way we can create that space that many of us lack is through boundaries, is through putting up those separations. And I did that post, Krista, because I've come to see whether demand, ultimatum, a lot of times we are misconceptualizing and misusing this idea of boundaries based on a a faulty premise, a faulty logic, um, one that is really uncomfortable in so much we can't change other people. And when we have the idea by putting an ultimatum, by pointing a finger, we are operating under the belief, as, as far as I see it, that we can. That if I were to make something uncomfortable yeah. enough, right, for someone else, the risk of losing me, perhaps, you'll change. That's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. I think all the listeners can attest, those of us who have attempted to change, change is hard as hell. Change means I have to make new choices day in and day out. So unless that comes from somewhat within, I'm not going to be able to maintain that. So when I talk about boundaries, they're really an action for me, for me to create that safety and that space so that I change. And then obviously an indirect often consequence of my changing is the relationship changes, is by proxy, the person changes in a more indirect manner, but it's not in that very directional way that many of us attempt. Because it seems like control, yeah, you know? And we as humans love, love the control. The control. We hate the idea of uncertainty. We <laughs> That's can't why tolerate I think 2020 it. was so hard for so many people because we... Mm-hmm myself included, think that we have control of our lives. And yeah, I've just realized, I'm like, dude, I have no control over anything. I have no control over. As much as I want to, in my mind, mentally think that I'm creating my reality, which I very much do, I know also that I really have no control. You know? I'm curious when you started to make boundaries or set boundaries with your immediate family. Um, I'm just relating to this. And my experience (laughs) is feeling like I'm, it's almost like a separation from, almost like being separated from mom and dad. And like, does this mean like there's the great divide now that I have a boundary? Because there is that enmeshment and codependency in a lot of ways. So I'm just curious about your experience in that particular dynamic. And then part B to that question is, you know, when I've created boundaries with friends, for example, I find myself like trying to manage their experience of the boundary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, because it's, uh, it's usually activating a part of them, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm just like, oh, should I tell them that like mm-hmm. they were, they were abandoned when they were a child and <laughs> yes. that's why they're reacting yes. to my boundaries. Yes. So I would love to kind of like pick that apart because yeah. I'm, it's real in real time happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that, Lindsay. And I actually love that you use that word separation. Yeah. You know, I, not to put words in your mm-hmm. mouth, when I hear that, I, and the word language that my brain would use is I could equally throw in loss. 
Yeah. Because we are, we're mourning. When we are changing, mm-hmm. we're mourning aspects of ourselves. We're mourning our old way of being. We're mourning, to put this in the context of relationships, possibly with our family, we're mourning that particular dynamic that once was, that on some level we know will no longer be. So that wall, that separation is, is I think, a function of loss that's mm-hmm. real, that is yeah. part of changing, that for many of us is uncomfortable enough that it keeps us reverting right back into those familiar patterns. So for me, if I'm honest, I didn't actually begin boundary work with my family at all because I knew that that would be the most difficult space for me to begin to create those separations and to show up in a new way and more and all of that. I knew that would shift and change as a result. So I started on the periphery. I started with relationships that felt a little less threatening um, if I were to lose them or imagine losing some aspect of them. So for me, I started in my professional world. As, As far as I saw it or experienced it, a stranger on the internet, while still very uncomfortable to say no to or to be unavailable to, felt a little safer than my romantic partner or than my family. So, mm-hmm. and I, I offer that as a suggestion for anyone out there who has no boundaries and wants to begin to create them because they're hard as hell mm-hmm. and a lot comes up for us and the other person. So when I finally, you know, kind of worked my way in, developed confidence enough and finally began to implement boundaries within my family, I was met with all types of reactions, one of which was a confirmation of exactly what I suspected. I was told I was selfish. I was told that family doesn't do this to mm-hmm. family, right? So that for me was my worst fear. And it was confirmed. I, I had that yelled back at me at, at, on one occasion, even by my sister. And for me, that was a really, really difficult space. Mm-hmm. And with it, like I said, came a lot of loss, a lot of mourning. However, on the other side of it now, years later, not overnight, what I'm experiencing now within my family unit is a new relationship. It feels different. It brings up discomfort still. However, in my opinion and in my experience, it's going to be a much more sustainable one. I love families and they're also so predictable. It feels like, do you know what I mean? It's just like, once you understand painfully, once I'm like, you, don't do it. Yes. Once it. you're following your account, you're like, it's like you can find the graphic for what they're going to say. Like, you're like, okay, you're going to tell me I'm selfish. Okay, what's next? You're going to tell me I'm like, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, it's so comical. I don't know if this is kind of a weird question. I, this is, okay, I attract, <laughs> I attract people that are enmeshed. I like females. I attract women that want to be enmeshed with me. And let's be clear, it's not me. Okay. Let's be clear, it's not Lindsay. <laughs> let's be clear. And so I don't know what that is about me. Where I'm, at, I'm, I'm realizing that now. And actually, I've gotten older. I'm like, I can see it from a mile away. Where I'm like, oh wow, this is about to happen, or this person wants this to happen, and I can stop it. Like I just had my last two rounds of the tests around it, where it was like one person that wanted to be enmeshed and I had to put the boundary and then a new person where I'm like, actually, I'm not going to go with this because I know that's going to happen or that's going to... So what about me is attracting people that want to be enmeshed? <laughs> Honestly. Can, can you... <laughs> can I explain? Prescribe something. Yes, can you prescribe something? Which graphic should I... Well, I I would be interested, Kristen, what what the history was. Do you have past relationships? Because we do tend to attract and show up very similarly. Like I said, we go on. Maybe I'm a meshing. We go on. Or or it just could be an energy about you. Mm -hmm. I mean, there could be something that is repeating in your life that attracts 
that that type yes. of of person in a way. I feel like it's always happened with women. Like I've always had female relationships, like very, and I think this is like mother wound things, but it's like I've had periods in my life where I've had these very intense, enmeshed female relationships and friendships. And it's like, as I've gotten older, I've realized I don't like that. I'm like, oh, I really like my independence. I like to be my, my own person. But, and I think I'm sort of moving out of it, but I don't know if it's a mother wound thing. Yeah. I, I have, I asked because mm-hmm. I have a similar history mm-hmm. of having, and of course, you know, I'm a lesbian, so we can make jokes about, of course you get dive in though. <laughs> I've had friendships that are also really intense. And, though that happened very quickly. Just you so know. everyone knows we weren't going to make those jokes. So, <laughs> hey, I'll that do was it. really you. honestly making jokes. Call it like it is. Call it like it is. Though that was also part of my friendships included this intensity this time spent together. And yes. of course, I understand it as being a function of that's what I was used to. However, the interesting piece of it was I never felt fulfilled. I never felt actually close. I never felt yes. actually deeply known by these people because what I came to realize in my patterning was while I would quote unquote connect, I was connecting around specific feelings, specific topics, if you will, and a specific level of consciousness, meaning in my family of origin, we connected around stress. One of our favorite experiences and mantras was it's always something. And this could be, right, the trash didn't go out on time to actually yes. something serious. My sister being, had having medical conditions and there being a medical you know, mm. issue in the home. However, when there was stress in the home with one person, when something happened to my dad or my mom or my sister, the whole family felt stress. So for me, I noticed that same patterning in my relationships where we would bond around maybe stress or a very surface one instance, one thing, or maybe it was just time spent together, though it really wasn't deep time Mm -hmm. spent together. So while I had people around me, and I've always had a very active social life, I've always been in a partnership of some kind, I've always had relationships and this was very much a part of my dark night of the soul because I came to realize while my world was populated with humans, I felt deeply alone. I felt not understood. I didn't actually feel like what, where we were connecting was from that deep place. So if you looked around, like I said, there was always someone in my phone, always someone at my home. I was always at happy hour. So, and talking and relating though, again, what was the content of it? That's my life. <laughs> That's my life. I feel truly seen. This is actually what I'm working most on right now is really that. And the need to feel like I have to wear a mask almost. And with the enmeshment relationships, I've realized over time that I was just fulfilling a role for them. And I was sort of in the role that I was in with my mom, where it was just like, what questions can I ask you? What can I support Mm -hmm. you in? What can I learn about you? And I would just completely abandon myself to Mm -hmm. be in support of this person or listen to this person or encourage this person. And I just like, over time, I'm like, yo, that is incredibly exhausting. Yeah. Like I shouldn't be hanging out with a person for three hours and not have them like ask a single question of me. Mm-hmm. And how much of my life has been with the mask on of like, okay, what do you need me to be? Like, what, what do you need me to be right now? Do you need me to be funny? Do you need me to be encouraging? Do you need me to listen? Like what kind of person do you want me to be? And then fulfilling that role. And I found that in those enmeshed friendships, it was like, because they were so intense, I would fulfill that role much more quickly. And then I was kind of stuck in it for like the remainder of their relationship. Yeah, we, we do get ourselves stuck in dynamics. That's why we repeat the ones from childhood. And then once we are in a dynamic with someone, expectations develop. That's why boundaries are at the surface. Yeah. 
a violation of that expectation. What do you mean, Nicole? You're always there for me in this way. Now I'm shocked at minimum. And then going back to something you said earlier, Lindsay, those of us that have some degree of an abandonment wound, up comes that. Now I'm activated. Now I feel like I've done something wrong that there's this new space um, around me. I actually want to share because I would do the opposite in a way. Mm. I got really good at tending to other people. And my favorite way of tending to other people at times was filling the air, was sharing about myself, though not in a deep way, Mm -hmm. was sharing about my latest problem, was bitching, was oh, and I would fill air, fill air. So I actually had to have the devastating realization as part of my healing journey that I was what I call in the book, an emotional dumper. I was a person who brought a lot of typically stress, always something to my relationships Mm -hmm. as a vent. And I was someone who didn't ask too much at times about other people. Um, so I had to you know, shift that because I, I, I realized two things. To be known by someone, you have to share. Yeah. So I wanted to share other aspects of my life now that I was no longer always stressed or always something. That's vulnerable. That's uncomfortable. So that I'm still working that mm-hmm. journey of how do I share deep aspects of myself with someone else and I have to learn how to hold the space for someone else to do the same by asking the questions, by sitting in silence, by not feeling like I have to fill the air um, at all times. Yeah, I relate to that. I relate to not sharing deep aspects of myself in order to like Mm -hmm. just build a deeper connection with people. And I think, you know, I relate to Krista in that like I definitely take the temperature and morph like, what do you need? What do you need me to be right now? Because I can do it. And, but for me, I noticed that like, I actually like swing the other way in terms of that, those relationships, I don't engage at all because I know that I will need to create a boundary. Um, And I think I avoid creating boundaries and I avoid having those maybe very truthful, sometimes hard conversations with people. I'd actually just rather avoid altogether. So I'm trying to find the balance because I've found myself to, yeah, like not have as many, I have some really beautiful deep relationships and I value those, but I think I kind of avoid it sometimes because I know that I need to like actually first take care of me set those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard for me. You mentioned child, like childhood dynamics. And one part of the the book that I really loved was the different inner child archetypes. Mm. It just really, it really spoke to me. And I just thought, you know, I've been doing, we've both been doing a lot of inner child work in therapy. And I'd love to briefly, briefly talk about that and how we can identify what our inner child archetype is. Yeah. So an archetype, just so we all know what we're talking about is, you know, a very loose general category. And I'm saying this specifically because we can see many aspects, some aspects, part aspects, aspects of many archetypes. And Mm -hmm. I share this because I I do notice and observe about myself sometimes in the collective. We like the idea of fitting into a neat box. Yes. I believe with the anticipation that there's a neat protocol or prescription, like we were all joking about earlier, to Mm -hmm. find my way out of the box. Mm -hmm. And again, here's where the devastating realization is that we're very complicated as humans. And many of us do embody parts of archetypes. Um, So some people might see themselves very overwhelmingly in one and others might see aspects. So what is an archetype? a general way of being. Um, Again, like we talked about earlier, they originate based on our earliest relationships. And then before long, we're school age. And now we're, you know, going out and creating, you know, relationships with other kids Mm -hmm. in our area, et cetera. 
before long, it shifts into romantic and we again embody all of these type of roles. So I forget how many archetypes I mentioned. Um, there's the, the yes person, the caretaker, um, the life of the party. There's many different roles. We can think of an archetype as a role. How mm. do we commonly show up in relationships? So anyone out there can use their current relationships as a point of witness, mm-hmm. learning how to first, and mm-hmm. I talk about this in the very beginning of my book because it's so foundational, become conscious, learn how to witness ourselves mm-hmm. in the world. Contrasting this with the way many of us live life day to day, which is in that autopilot. I'm just going about my daily ins and outs, including the way I relate in a relationship without really giving it much observation or thought. So we want to practice consciousness. We want to learn how to see ourselves Mm -hmm. as we're going about our world, specifically in the context of this conversation, as we're relating. And the more you practice being a conscious witness to yourself, what you would want to explore is what are the roles? How do you experience yourself you know, generally across relationships? Are there certain things that you do or don't do? And again, chances are you are embodying a type of role. And is that connected to specifically like your immediate family dynamics or does that develop at a point of like um, a specific experience in childhood or when does that form or how does that form? It begins typically in those core units, the families with the caregivers, specifically around connection. Because as children, when we are infants, we are the one mammal, I believe on this planet that needs care. We can't sustain life. A human infant needs its physical needs at minimum to be cared for by a separate entity, another human, if you will. So because we're wired to connect, because we're interpersonal, those connections literally sustain our life in childhood. We're also incredibly attuned and adaptive. So we learn how to connect with these individuals, whether or not we're fully getting our needs met or not. And because those connections are so integrally important for us, they're what keeps us safe or the version of safety that we've been able to define. They're what keeps us getting our needs met to whatever degree our caregivers are capable of. This is where we begin to modify ourselves. We begin to learn, right? When mom doesn't show up receptively, when we're sad, we show a little less sadness. Mm -hmm. And then before we know it, we might morph into that archetype, the life of the party, where I'm never sad. No one ever gets to see sadness. Mm. That's just one example. Um, And that's why I kind of localize them to those immediate units, because those are our earliest relationships. However, it's compounded then by the fact that I repeat this. And now I have experiences with peers where maybe similar hurt happened, accumulating more reason to not show certain aspects of ourself. And then we fully morph into more often than not, at least embodying self as that archetype to the the detriment of the rest of us. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Honestly. What are you? Caretaker. (laughs) Caretaker, overachiever, life of the party. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of those three. Same. Are you? I got really good at being life of the party. I'm our frick, yeah, everyone. <laughs> everyone, let's not fail. Rescuer protector. Yeah. And then <laughs> yes person. Uh, actually, no, I'm not a yes person. Hero worshiper is interesting. I don't think I have a, a single person that I know that has that. Um, interesting. Love complex. It. On the point we were kind of touching on earlier, which I feel deeply connected to you on, is like, how do we create authentic connections? You know, if we are trying to 
take the mask off or we are trying to really have deep, meaningful relationships with people? Like what steps are you taking in your life or what steps do you suggest for people to take? The first step I think is being authentic with ourselves, authentically acknowledging our maybe physical needs or authentically acknowledging all of the range of emotional experiences we have and maybe even at any given moment, um, authentically showing up in my spiritual essence or just being me. And as far as I see and experience it, often that happens within first because a lot of us are criticizing ourselves, aren't allowing parts of self to show our emotions, aren't showing aspects of our spiritual essence, or maybe aren't meeting our physical needs and we're living in a dysregulated body. So before I can feel safe enough to gift that to someone else or to bring that in any relational space, a lot of us have to begin to do that inner work. You don't know how many times I've heard and felt myself when I first began to spend time in quote unquote meditation turned inward, if you will, Mm -hmm how much I wanted to run. I did not like turning inward. I was so uncomfortable in my body. Mm -hmm. For me, it lived as agitation. I couldn't sit still. To my mind, racing Mm -hmm. thoughts, all of the million reasons why this was not what I should be doing right now. And I know a lot of people feel very similarly. So before we can, like I said, show up in self-expression, we have to learn how to express to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have to learn how to be okay with who we are and how we are in any given moment. So Chris, I think that's the number one first step um, because that in and of itself for many of us is the journey. And then of course, it's translating that outward because it does get, it's vulnerable. It's scary. It feels risky. Even if we get really comfortable with who we think we are, when we go to show it to maybe even the person closest to us, it can still bring up a lot because it's new. And like I said, it is vulnerable to show these parts of ourself that we've kept hidden. The deregulated body is that that's connected to like a nervous system reaction to something so our nervous system is constantly online scanning our environment outside mm. of our our awareness even it's exhausted yeah and it's responding reacting mainly to things in our environment and part of the reason i found in my in my old practice and in my own life why we're we're stuck is because we're trying so hard to overpower our physiology. We're mm. trying to think our way to a new experience or to a new future. I mean, the gold standard, if we're you know speaking mm-hmm. about it in my field, is CBT. This idea that changing our thoughts can change our behaviors and our experiences of the world. And mm-hmm. while I have a whole chapter about thought, the power of belief, mm-hmm. a belief is a practice thought. We now know how incredibly powerful our thoughts are. However, We also now know that our mind, our brain is attached to a body, Mm -hmm. a physiology, a nervous system in particular. So what I kept coming up against in my own life and in my life with my clients, which led me and all of us to be incredibly disempowered, is the inability Mm -hmm. to think our way happy or healthy or Mm -hmm. fulfilled until we, and this is why I'm so impassioned about promoting this holistic model of wellness until we do understand that we do live in a physical body that for many of us is dysregulated and is keeping us stuck, we're going to continue to feel disempowered and broken and incapable of creating a future that we want. What practices would you recommend for people that can identify with that dysregulated body? Absolutely. So the practice I built my foundational change on around my body was breath work. Because mm-hmm. for me, I mean, we're all carrying our breath around. We're all breathing day in and day out. Little do many of us know <clears throat> that the way some of us might be breathing, breathing really shallow from our chest, or 
something I've witnessed in myself. I hold my breath. When I'm stressed, if mm-hmm. I were to check yes. in with my body, I'm actually like, <gasps> same. I'm like, are you alive? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's holding on my yeah. breath. And mm-hmm. why I'm highlighting this, our mind is scanning our body. And as we create that shallow chest brace based breath, as we hold our breath, even that's a signal to our nervous system that we are activated, that we are stressed out. And that's going to send a signal then to my mind to figure out why the hell I'm stressed out. And this is why I have one anxious thought after another. This is why I call to mind all of the things that I could worry about that happened yesterday or tomorrow because my body Mm -hmm. is communicating to my mind in that moment. So as soon as we become aware of the, our body, because, and jokes aside, there are many of us who are living in a body and are so disconnected from that. Mm -hmm. I used to say I lived on a spaceship. I felt so out of body Mm -hmm. all of the time that I didn't even, I couldn't even really tune in to, am I breathing? How am I breathing? Is it affecting how I'm feeling until I learned how to be in my body? Mm-hmm. So learning how to be in our body, learning how to utilize our breath um, can be incredibly powerful regulator of our mood. Breath work has been really, really powerful for me. And I notice when I, I haven't done it in a while and I, I notice. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. It's just, I notice that my body holds in certain areas, whether I become, mm-hmm. it's like when the anxiety comes up after I haven't done breath work in a while, I feel it in a particular area of my body. So I always know it's yeah. time to, yeah. to go in. Yeah. Just, to, really- just to offer this too, because um, for me, breath work didn't begin with a practice where I'm sitting and doing quote unquote breath work. Breath work for me began setting a reminder on my phone. And when that, when that alarm went off, checking in with my breath mm. in real time. Mm. My, my practice began, you know, just in real time learning how to tune in and pay attention to my breath. And then I evolved into I developing that. a sitting practice, understanding that if I could teach my body how to breathe from its belly or its diaphragm, that that could help activate what I needed for me, mm-hmm. that parasympathetic, that restful nervous system, because I was overactivated. For me, it was hard at first because my posture, everything was so constricted from stress for so long that even accessing that belly breath was a challenge. So I share this because I know a lot of people like breath work feels intimidating. It is feels like a version of meditating mm-hmm. and I don't want to sit and be quiet or maybe I just don't have the quote unquote time. Mm-hmm. So just this is for those listening yeah. that breath work can begin as a practice. So can consciousness in real time as you're going about your day. And for a lot of us, that becomes the foundation to do more and more of that practice and actually create the change. Because that's the other thing about breath work. One deep belly breath, I'll be the bearer of this bad news, isn't going to mm-hmm. regulate your nervous system. Mm-hmm. It's learning consistently how to utilize your breath to regulate yourself. Today I was, um, or maybe it was yesterday, I, was, I looked at my phone, which I don't normally do before I was about to meditate, and I saw something that annoyed me. <laughs> And I like sat down and I looked at something else. And then I came back. I was like, what was that annoying thought that I wanted to ruminate on? <laughs> and I had lost the annoying thought in my head that I wanted to like continue to like be annoyed by. And I was like, where did that go? And I literally searched for it for like 15 seconds. And I was like, let it go. <laughs> let that thought go. And I was like, wow, I'm going to do this more often. Because it, it was helpful because it made me realize when do I choose those annoying repetitive thoughts? Yeah. You know, how often, mm-hmm. like I was thinking this morning, there was an email that came in and that was annoying. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I probably haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah. It wasn't that annoying. It just was like, 
it was my first opportunity of the day to be annoyed. <laughs> and so, Congratulations, it happened it early. Was right, it was right first in line. <laughs> and I sat there, I'm like, God damn, there's a lot of annoying stuff that comes my way every single day. And I'm like, oh, it's actually on me. I need to have my non-response to these. Okay, so that's my question then. So what is, is it, is the, is the best response non-response or non-engagement or like, how much are we supposed to have divine neutrality in response to things that happen? And how much of us are supposed to like go through the process? As an example, we had something happen that was actually very good. There was like, basically truth came to light about certain situations. And I found myself being five years old, 10 years old. And I was like, my ego was like, yes, that's right, baby. Like I invalidated <laughs> all these things. And I didn't know if I should allow myself to have the moment of pure egoic validation and truth being revealed. And a lot of that is rooted in good. It's rooted in true good that like what was happening was shouldn't be happening. And, and the truth came came free. So how much of our process should we be allowing ourselves to have within like the pettiness and sort of like the immaturity that happens often when we're in situations? I love this question. And I'm going to answer, we can do both. Allowing feelings, whether or not they're egoic or not, that little silent victory. Yes. You know, it's this, I won. <laughs> I always say first, I'm like, I'm 10 years old right now, but I won. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. You know, that is part of our human experience. Something that we don't know, and I talk about this, or most of us don't have the experience with emotions that I talk about in the book, is they end. That mm. feeling of victory and or of defeat, whatever it might be in a given moment, goes away. They have a shelf life. The physiology, the hormones, the cortisol, the adrenaline, the heart rate spikes, and all that comes with our feelings end. Our body actually physiologically does desire to go back to that neutrality, to go back to that homeostasis. It's equipped to do that if we allow it. What most of us do, whether it's a victorious thought or a thought of defeat, is we bring it up to our thoughts. And we do, like you very mm -hmm. openly shared, mm -hmm. and I was giggling even more so because I had the same morning yesterday where mm -hmm. I did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I indulged, I found my thought, and I stuck with it for a very long time. So what could have been for me the opposite, defeat, right? Reading something annoying in a mm -hmm. comment or in an email, right? Sitting in that, it would have left had I tuned into just my body. How is my body feeling? Can I objectify this? Can I just be with the sensations that are happening? Instead, I brought it up to my mind and I told myself a story about what this person meant. And then I went spinning into an emotional cyclone. So to simplify the answer, being with whatever feeling we're having, sensical or not, childish or not, however you want to judge it or not, though trying not to judge it, mm -hmm. just allowing it to be as it is in our bodies is beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to do. That's how we actually allow ourselves to reboot and to return to that baseline. Mm -hmm. Catching ourselves in the habit of bringing it up to our mind allows us to do that. So your meditation mm -hmm. practice was that interrupt. Um, sometimes it's just being conscious, mm. you know, seeing myself go to click on that next account that I know is going to bother me or hearing myself starting to ruminate and repeat the same thing over and over again. At that moment, if I'm in my conscious mind, I can make a new choice. Mm -hmm. And here's where I can offer you, it's okay to distract yourself. You can actually go and I would suggest you to put your attention, find another hook, 
go wash the dishes and put your full attention into the dishwashing or go take a walk or go play with your animal and actually remove your focus. I was making a correlation in my mind to sort of what I perceive to be part of a very small part of the collective lesson in 2020 was situations like related to, I think, in government where we were giving our power away or where people were giving their power to gurus or other spiritual teachers or leaders where there was just this continued giving their people's power away. And then in 2021, it's the censorship feels like it's a very relevant topic and how much that almost reflects the self-censorship that we do of ourselves and our feelings. And I'm wondering if we are able to sort of remedy that, that the collective reflection or the collective shadow will also remedy around censorship. Because I feel like, yeah, like self-censoring is something that I've been really focused on too, because Mm -hmm. I have done so much of it. And I think people don't even know they're censoring themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people don't know. I think on some deep level, we might even fear not censoring ourselves, right? We fear how we'll be received by the world. Negatively, let me start there, and positively. Some of us on a very deep level are afraid to take that personal responsibility, not because of the negative, though I don't like love using that word negative, not Mm -hmm. because of the the, consequences that we might not like to see in our life, but because of stepping into the power, stepping into the relationship that we've always wanted, stepping into the career that we've always wanted. That can be just as challenging. And I know that's the counterintuitive one um, because none of that feels logical or seems logical, though I think that that's a really big challenge of when we start to talk about personal responsibility. Um, Like I said, I think it it goes on both ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just makes me think about the, like you talking about just self-censoring. I I find myself doing that sometimes online Mm -hmm. where I'm like, am I Justin does it to me at home. I call him big tech. (laughs) I was like doing a story the other day and I was kind of like poking fun at my mom. And he was like, oh, P, you can't do that. And I was like, all right, big tech, don't <laughs> censor me. And I was like, I don't want to be censored at my home. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, and I think it comes from, you know, for me, just not one, not feeling worthy enough to like share my own thoughts and true feelings. Two, being worried about how people will react. And three, almost like I am, it's like certain in how I feel and in my truth. But when it comes to then possibly explaining myself further, sometimes I'm at a loss for words because it is such a feeling and a knowing. I don't know what my question is, but I was just thinking about social media and how people, and this is generalization, are so quick to just jump on the bandwagon of, you know, either a takedown or, you know, whatever it is without taking a moment to recognize maybe what specifically this situation is bringing up within them, not Mm -hmm. within the collective, but within them individually. Because I think just hopping on a bandwagon is like a form of avoidance Mm -hmm. of that work that I think if we did individually, we would see collectively just so powerfully. So I'm just curious like what your experience with that has been and or just what you would say or comment on that because it's so prevalent right yeah. now. Yeah. I think generally, categorically, it's really much easier to focus outward, to look mm-hmm. outward, to again, have that belief that we were talking about earlier that this idea that if outward changed in some way, yep. my inward 
experience. And again, this isn't me, you know, I do acknowledge that there are many systems and many outward um, things that need to change in our worlds. Absolutely. Right. However, I do agree that it becomes easier sometimes. If this person just didn't do this or say this, I would have a different experience Mm -hmm. and it can be a form of distraction. Um, It, Looking inward is uncomfortable, like we've been talking about, understanding the role we're playing or maybe the role our past is playing and the reaction we're having right now, regardless if it's right or wrong, the reaction, instead of doing that exploration, it can be easier, I think, to look out when we have a group that's feeling the same way or seemingly feeling the same way. Now we feel included Mm -hmm. in our feeling. We might, if you're like me, feel some version of connectivity. Um, So it can get really complicated. And I think we do it for many different reasons Um, though. Yeah. I think it's a combo of, of all of that and social media and the whole internet world now is a, a microcosm of, our relationships of how we are in the world. I mean, I make a joke. I'm like, oh, we're all turning into virtual beings and our virtual landscape. Though it's not a joke. In a a lot of ways, many of us are spending much more time as our virtual personas than we are even in human form. And within that space, I mean, a lot can happen. We can experiment with other personas. We can show up authentically. We can do all of anything we want, really, Mm -hmm. under the guise of someone else, under the protection of a screen or whatever it might be. And it it brings up the same challenges that many of us have interpersonally or in our own healing. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't want to be like a doomsday person and be like, it's scary, you know, Mm because there's so much good that's happening. And I believe that a lot of the information sharing is actually helpful for our collective awareness and collective ascension but the persona thing and like the more, I've felt like that too, where I'm like, I, I've said this before yesterday, but I have to remind myself when I'm looking at real people. I'm like, oh, that's, I like think I'm like, that's mm. a person and they're with me or that's a wall mm-hmm. and that's a light. Mm-hmm. And I'm in this room physically, like, oh, my body's here. Like my feet are here. I'm on this ground. And because we're so on our phones and we can just get caught up in this cycle of like, really knowing a lot about people that we would never interact with on a daily basis. And that's such an interesting too, like the interconnectivity of um, the online world is really powerful, but also, you know, there's never been a time where you've had access where 3.4 million people would be able to connect with you mm-hmm. or 3.4 million people would be able to share their opinions with you or three point, mm-hmm. you know, it's just incredibly profound because that was like the power of like huge leaders of the world, Mm -hmm. you know? And now it's like power in quotes. And now it's like, oh, that's just what happens online. So with that, like, I guess, how can we help ourselves get out, like almost smash the glass of the online persona life that we're now living and hopefully lead us in a direction that feels more authentic? Yeah, I think to that, I want to speak to the point because as much as we know a lot about what were once strangers to us that might live wherever mm-hmm. in the world, we also don't know mm-hmm. a lot about the people that we're following, right? We don't actually yes. know them personally. We're yeah, not in body to body relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I bring that is there's a lot of room for interpretation or assigned meaning or yes. imagination or projection or all of the things. Um, and I think that's part of the answer to your question. Ultimately, Chris is we don't know online. We're, we're experimenting. We're so new in all of this yet. And until we find that space, right, of acknowledging how much we can allow to be visible and also how much is still not visible as a receiver of 
that visibility or lack thereof. And also as, you know, those of us who Mm -hmm. have the platform. Um, And I agree not to paint doomsday because I I see the side of it where, I mean, the fact that I can have a global Mm -hmm. community and I do have the opportunity now to have an international book as a result of it came because of this ability to exchange information and to connect with other individuals. So there's an incredibly beautiful aspect of online world too. I just think we have to remind ourselves it's new, it's a new space, and it's part of our life. Um, It doesn't necessarily allow for a a full accurate representation um, of anyone or anything as far as I see it and experience Mm. it. Yeah. Do you do any spiritual practices to kind of like I know I was just cords? I was just gonna introduce you to Kiki after this. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, we need <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. you know, I know that you speak to just the spiritual aspects of us mm-hmm. and just our spiritual essence. So I'm just curious like what you do personally. Yeah. With you know, mm-hmm. especially considering the large audience you have. Like we, you know, our audience is big. And we've had certain events where they're so positive and amazing, but there's a lot of people and a lot of energy. And we afterwards are like, mm-hmm. whoa, you know, very mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> kind of unwell in a way because mm-hmm. we have not taken the time to really disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, so curious what what yeah. you do. Yeah, I feel very similarly. And so part of my spiritual practice is building in that space, right? Knowing, especially now I'm, I'm in book launch mode. I have a lot of appearances mm-hmm. for the next several weeks for two weeks before I knew I was launching into this, I was out in Sedona and I was shut down and I was in a creative space and I was percolating ideas and I wasn't. I had no no schedules, no, no other people that I was to interact with outside of putting up memes and keeping the Instagram account, which felt protective. So I did that in anticipation of what was coming and on the back end of it, I will do the same. So my spiritual practice begins with just connecting to myself and understanding that these things do deplete us it's very difficult to show up fully present as I try to be, even having this conversation with the two of you. And then obviously opening ourselves up to all of the different energy exchanges that happen when you put yourself out there on Instagram with far more people than that. So my spiritual practices are going inward. And whether mm-hmm. that means I find a lot of my spiritual presence in nature. So reconnecting, I live by the beach. So I go to the mountains. I I do all of that. And yeah, it's to ground myself in myself, my energy, separate from the rest of the world. And this is practices, though, that I suggest all of us listening use Mm -hmm. at any time. We only have a certain number of resources. So whether or not you have the Instagram account, right, that depletes you or you're just general life Mm -hmm. in your relationships, we sometimes do run out of resources and we can't be fully available to everyone in our life all of the time. So the more aware we can become of how much we have to give and how much we don't have to give. Mm-hmm. And when we don't have to give, we can put up those boundaries and turn inward and replenish ourselves. We set ourselves up to succeed when we do present ourselves back in the world. Mm. Yes. The you did last thing I want to talk about was the beautiful post you did today. It's now going to be older, but it was on uh, forgiveness and it was on apologies and how to make like a meaningful, heartfelt apology. And I just felt like the story you wrote in there was so beautiful and your explanation of like the process of a proper apology was so powerful. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think very few of us were taught how to repair, how to, mm-hmm. you know, go come back 
from conflict or reestablish mm-hmm. grounding or continue a relationship once there's been an issue. And um, so part of my codependency, um, very similar, I think, to you, Lindsay, a little bit is I, I avoid any or historically any sort of issue or problem. Because my concern being, if I brought up an issue, I might hurt your feelings. You might get upset with me. So none of my issues mattered in relationships. So I didn't actually give myself, I saw similar patterning, of course, in my family. Only thing, anytime, the only time anything ever came to the surface was when it erupted. Mm. When the feelings got too big and now there's yelling and screaming. And then on the other side of it, once So one of two things would happen. Either it would continue in the form of silent treatment, avoidance of the other person for an amount of time. And then if that happened gradually, it would just go back to business life as usual and nothing would be talked about. Nothing would be addressed. So there was no moments of repair. Mm -hmm. I wasn't modeled any version of apology or any version of what happens next. So I was largely ill-equipped. I didn't know. So once I started to decide, that I needed to go head on into conflict, that I did have a, I needed to practice, you know, speaking when things weren't um, to my liking or, or weren't, you know, mm-hmm. comfortable for me in whatever way or my boundaries were being crossed. I needed to speak. It might be an uncomfortable conversation. I had no idea then what would happen next or how to acknowledge when I was wrong or receive when someone else was wrong. And I think a lot of us globally don't know how to apologize. And what I do know a lot of us attempt to do. And so I think a helpful tip is really checking in with ourselves around what is our intention. Mm -hmm. If we're going to apologize or to receive an apology, is our intention just to hold the space for the difficult conversation, to hear the other person's experience of us or to share our experience of the situation? Or is our intention to shift or change the outcome? Am I saying I'm sorry so that this discomfort can go away? Am Mm -hmm. I saying I'm sorry because I know that's what you want to hear? Um, or am I saying I'm sorry because I'm genuinely sorry? And then furthermore, another difficult aspect of an I'm sorry, if we're offering it, is we need to be comfortable holding space for whatever the reaction might be. A lot, I'll speak for myself. I hate disappointing people. I hate when I can't or don't show up for whatever reason. I hate when I show up in my not shiniest and I feel compelled to make an apology mm-hmm. It's incredibly difficult. So when I offer that apology, I desperately want the person on the other end to look at me and tell me it's okay and everything to be back to normal. And if and when that can't happen, because I, I, I don't know, this other person might have feelings. It might be too soon. It might open up, you know, other, or it might activate other wounding in that moment. And they might not be able to give me that relief. And I think that's the other aspect of apology is when we offer it really honoring the other person and what their experience. And they might not, A, want to hear it when you want to give it. Or if you've heard it, if you've said it, they might not be able to receive it and it might not feel better right away. Mm. I'm just nodding very, very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, We were speaking before we started the interview and you were just talking about the process of writing the book. And there are aspects of this that are a memoir of sorts. And so like kind of going back, rereading, editing, et cetera, you were saying was just quite emotional and, and and a lot. So I would just, I'd love to just for you to share about that part of the process because it just reminds me of even, I'm like, oh, that's why I avoid journaling sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I'm like, oh, I don't want to write that down and mm-hmm. then read it mm-hmm. next week or next month or next year. So yeah, I would love to, to 
talk about that process and then just kind of how to translate that for our own practices of self-reflection too. Yeah. So even the exercise of sharing my story, thinking about my story, you know, from the beginning, conceptualizing the book to putting it down to getting draft after draft and reading it and being that observer, a lot came up positive, I mean, negative and positive, to be honest, there were parts of the journey where, you know, I I would feel that empowerment. I would feel, you know, that, that feeling that I know that I was living in whatever moment I was sharing. So reliving the book and and my journey thus far is not only been reliving the difficult parts that anyone who reads the book will read. Um, I do share, you know, some, some aspects of past things that had happened that were wounding. If I'm honest, I don't even know if I fully touched what I feel about those difficult pieces. So if I'm honest, there's still aspects of me, my emotional self when I'm reading that book that I know are a bit distanced Mm -hmm. still, that I know I'll continue to read and think about and maybe be able to touch more and more. I don't know fully how I feel even about some of the things that happened yet. I like to joke, I call myself a turtle with my feelings. It takes me a bit. It takes Mm -hmm. me a bit to feel around, to get into my body and to really know so especially when it's going to be something as, as deep um, and as difficult as I've shared, I know somewhat of how it made me feel, though I'm open to continuing to feel the washes of the experience of it. Another piece, um, and I actually went down a, quite a bit of a rabbit hole last night in thinking about this, there's a part of me because in what I'm sharing, I'm sharing about my family. Mm-hmm. And there's a very big part of me that is like, oh, they're very, they're aware of the book. We've had many, after we've spent some time apart, I think those of you who followed my story know that I did take some time away from my family unit to heal my codependency patterns, create that space. And then we've been over the past year in the process of rebuilding our relationships in a newer way. So they're aware of the book. We've had several family therapy sessions in the beginning where we were initiating some of these more difficult conversations with the help of a therapist. So the book and the fact that I'm on Instagram and I'm talking about this content from parents who are older, my parents are in their 80s now. And when they were raised, a very big part of their childhood, my mom in particular, was don't let the neighbors know. Mm -hmm. Bring the beer in the back so that no one sees that we're having a party tonight, right? And here's their daughter saying to 3.4 million people some of the dirty laundry. And I do see differing opinions on what is ours to share of our journey and what isn't ours to share? And that codependent part of me mm-hmm. has still that instinct of, oh, I don't want to share this aspect of my story because of how it'll appear or how it'll make you appear or how it'll make you feel. Mm-hmm. So I went down a bit of a rabbit hole last night with that, um, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, and my family and how can I have done this? And I also then in that moment make space and I want to, you know, I, they listen to my work and I want to share with them gratitude and I continue to, to allow me speaking about these things to be the catalyst for other people's healing. Because I believe that a large reason why, just to bring all this beautifully full circle, we don't tell ourselves truths. We feel shameful. We don't stand in our authenticity within ourselves and to others is because many of us have been conditioned in the same way not mm-hmm. to for whatever reason. So being a, a, a voice, and I know there are many other people that are sharing their own past experiences, with, which do include other characters. Um, my hope is from that can be healing, can be finally truths that are spoken because it is universal. There are 33, you know, 3.4 million people that are resonating, meaning they've lived somewhat of a similar experience. So we're not alone. If you've had the upbringing that I've had, or if you're the parents 
knowing, raising the children, um, we're not alone. And I think the sooner that all of this is talked about, the more we can create change. So saying all that to say, I still have parts of reading the book and of knowing it's going to live in the world that challenge me, that challenge my conditioning, and that continue to provide opportunity for me to create new spaces in my healing journey for myself and within my relationships. How much time do you spend on your own healing? Like on a weekly basis? I live it. Yeah. I don't think it ends. I think it's a, a daily thing, you know, when I'm showing up for myself the way I want to be from when I'm not. So my story, like I said, was a little bit different than yours yesterday, Krista. I didn't mm-hmm. lose my thought. I wallowed in it. Mm-hmm. I went down that rabbit hole. I didn't do my morning routine. Mm-hmm. I didn't take myself, you know, to do yoga or to move my body that mm-hmm. I know can be helpful. I didn't meditate. I actually spent a couple hours just feeling bad. And mm-hmm. then I reminded myself that I did have a new opportunity in that moment. And then I went and I got up and I did some version. I rebooted with a small walk. Um, So I'm healing day in and day out. Um, I don't think that that, as I call that utopian hippie hammock where we're done as we like to be and I could just throw my peace signs and not be bothered with this. I don't don't think that exists. Um, I think healing is living. And I know that we are in ever-changing bodies. I'm 38 now. I don't know what 48 is going to feel or be like. I don't know what 58 or 68 is going to feel or be like. So if I were to come up with a protocol that worked now, that doneness, I don't know if that would continue to work mm-hmm. as I shift and as I change. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. The book, How to Do the Work, Recognize Your Patterns, Heal from Your Past, and Create Yourself. You should be really proud. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh rocking you've come so far <laughs> i feel like people say this all the time they're like you've come so far and i'm like where i think you've come far truly so when they say it does i'm like oh where did you think we were before but i'm really excited this is really beautiful yeah. and it's just been really beautiful thank to know you. you and you on your journey yeah thank you both so much and yeah. you've been supportive from the beginning and i it takes people like you going out there sharing your life your journeys that continue to empower people like me and then we do become that beautiful puzzle piece, you know, where we're all yeah. showing up as us and we're empowered as receivers of all of the usness, knowing, you know, kind of what works for us and what doesn't. I believe that's how greater change happens. So mm. thanks to you both. That's the truth. Thank you. Congrats. All, all right, right, guys. We'll, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Dr. Nicole LaPera, everyone. Thanks so much for joining. That was beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Nicole. We have one more episode with her. You guys can search Dr. Nicole LaPera, Almost 30, and you'll find that one. And then you can also find more information about her at the.holistic.psychologist on Instagram and Facebook. And on YouTube, she's The Holistic Psychologist. And her website is yourholisticpsychologist.com. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our sponsors for this episode. As always, we're just sharing brands we love and use ourselves. Um, and thank you for like investing in these brands too. You know, all of them we're just really happy and proud to be working with, and it helps us do this show. So, thank you to BTR Bars, Paleo Valley, Minted, and Away Travel. You can find all discounts and information in our show notes as well as on almost30.com. Yeah. Thank you guys for subscribing. Thank you for leaving a kind review for the show. We will see you every Tuesday and Thursday and we love you so much. Love you. Bye. Bye.